Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for medical practices. In the next three podcast episodes, we're going to be addressing the subject of lipids and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and I will be introducing you to a very interesting guest. I thought in the first episode, I should introduce the subject. The background information I think is very important, but it would just be me discussing my synthesis of lipids and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So if you're not inclined to listen to me, which is going to be a bit like a lecture, please feel free to jump to the next episode. Well, lipids are essential for cell function and healthy metabolism. However, clinical analysis of a patient's lipid profile also addresses one of the fundamental drivers of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease responsible for 25% of all deaths in Australia. A modification of abnormal serum lipid levels by lifestyle and pharmacologic intervention aims to achieve a healthy coronary circulation, reducing new atheroma formation and stabilising pre-existing atheromatous plaques. So to just remind ourselves, atheroma develops when cholesterol esters and triglycerides enter the vascular intima, inducing local inflammation. And macrophages recruited to the inflammation engulf the cholesterol esters by phagocytosis. And stuffed with these cholesterol esters, they're referred to as foam cells. The inflammatory cascade is accentuated and recruits more inflammatory cells, some of whom perish over time, and calcium deposition and fibrosis develops within a forming plaque. And plaque enlargement may distort vascular anatomy, expanding into the vessel lumen, impeding blood flow, and inducing ischemia. However, not all plaques impact in this way, and even large developing plaques may form in a way that does not disrupt blood flow at all, or only minimally. Instability, however, in a growing plaque may lead to rupture and the initiation of acute thrombotic event. And whilst hyperlipidemia underscores atheroma pathogenesis, this complex and life-threatening process is also adversely influenced by cigarette smoking, hypertension, genetics, and poor glycemic control. Well, having a clear understanding of lipid physiology allows us to appreciate both atheroma formation and how cardiovascular risk may be modified. And one of the key points is that lipids are water-insoluble and thus must be transported around our circulation in specialised vesicles. These are called lipoproteins when produced by the liver for entry into the circulation and micelles produced by the liver for entry into the biliary system and subsequently the gastrointestinal tract. They're called chylomicrons when they're produced by gut enterocytes to transport lipids from the digestive tract via lymphatics and ultimately into the circulation. And also by way of background, triglycerides are also referred to as triacylglycerols and both triglycerides and cholesterol have both exogenous and de novo endogenous sources. Let's talk about triglycerides first. These are composed of three fatty acids, each consisting of unbranched hydrocarbon chains with a carboxyl group at one end bound to a carbohydrate backbone called glycerol. And this accounts for about 95% of all dietary fats. So a 100-gram piece of meat contains about 250 calories, 35 grams of protein, and 10 grams of fat, the majority of which is triglyceride. 
only 100 milligrams or less is cholesterol. But of course, these figures will vary a little bit on the meat quality and cut. Triglycerides are used as an energy source, supplying 35% to 40% of the total calories in typical Western diets. Greater than 50% of total triglycerides are provided by dietary sources. However, de novo endogenous synthesis also takes place in the liver, and an estimated 25 to 50 grams of triglycerides per day is produced there and then ingeniously transported around the circulation in these specialised water-soluble vesicles we've mentioned called lipoproteins. Saturated fats refer to the carbons of the fatty acids being linked exclusively by single bonds. They're saturated with hydrogen. And palmitic acid and stearic acid are the most common fatty acids in animal fat, accounting for 30 to 40% of fatty acids in human tissue. Monosaturated fats have one double bond, and polyunsaturated fats have more than one. Polyunsaturated trans fats have hydrogen atoms on opposite sides of the double bonds. Well, this configuration changes the shape and chemical properties of the molecule, and it's used in the food industry to induce solidification of liquid fats, improving their shelf life, but unfortunately, inadvertently increasing cardiovascular risk. Now to talk about cholesterol. Well, cholesterol is an unsaturated alcohol of the steroid family of compounds and is synthesized by all nucleated cells. So our human body contains about 140 grams of cholesterol. It's essential to multiple biologic functions. It's an integral component of cell membranes, natural steroids, and bile salts. Well, most people in modern societies eat about one gram of cholesterol per day. The main food sources include egg, um, or egg yolk, shrimp, beef, and poultry, as well as cheese and butter. An estimated 1 to 1.5 grams of cholesterol is also lost daily through desquamation and in the feces, which must be replaced so that the total physiological pool is held in balance. Well, that's where endogenous synthesis comes into play, and endogenous synthesis amounts to 0.5 to 1 grams of cholesterol production per day. And this is the subject of feedback controls. All nucleated cells can synthesize cholesterol. However, the liver manufactures about 50% of the body's total production. And cellular synthesis from glucose requires the HMG coenzyme A reductase enzyme. And this is a critical biochemical step converting acetoacetyl coenzyme A to mevalonate that is upregulated by insulin and downregulated by glucagon and free cholesterol. Well, there's a lot of information there to understand and digest, and this is a fascinating subject. I think it's important to understand further basic science issues. One, how dietary lipids are processed and distributed from the intestine to other tissues. Two, the endogenous production and transport of lipid from liver to other tissues. Three, the reverse transport of cholesterol from extrahepatic tissue to the liver. And four, fatty acid transport from adipocytes to other tissues. So first, how dietary lipids are processed and distributed from the intestine to other tissues? Well, dietary triglycerides, triglyceride fat, is digested by several pancreatic lipases to two monoglycerides and free fatty acids. And these form mixed micelles with cholesterol derivatives and bile salts before transport into gut enterocytes, predominantly in the proximal small bowel. Cholesterol is absorbed throughout the small intestine, but also predominantly in the duodenum and proximal duodenum through membrane proteins, which are called the Neiman PIC C1 like one membrane proteins. And these are the target of the drug azetamide, you may be familiar with. 
within the enterocyte, the triglycerides are now reassembled from free fatty acids and the two monoglycerides. And as fats are insoluble, they have to be packed up into particles called chylomicrons, which contain about 90% triglyceride and 5% cholesterol esters. So now we have the triglycerides that have reformed. They combine with cholesterol into these very specialized vesicles called chylomicrons. But the chylomicrons are too big to enter the circulation as the endothelium of intestinal capillaries has no fenestrations. And so they have to be transported by the lymphatic system, entering the circulation by the thoracic duct. And only free fatty acids containing less than 10 to 12 carbon atoms are water-soluble enough to directly enter the circulation. So lipids from the chylomicrons are used by skeletal muscle, heart, adipose tissue, and other organs, and are removed by an endothelial enzyme called lipoprotein lipase, which is attached to heparin sulfate proteoglycans found on the surface of the capillary endothelium in these organs. And interestingly, neither the liver nor the brain possess this enzyme. Well, the lipoprotein lipase breaks the triglyceride down to monoglycerides and free fatty acids again, so they're being made, taken down, made, taken, to be taken up by the cells. The chylomicron triglyceride is removed in only 5 to 10 minutes, rather quick, whilst the chylomicron remnants have a lifespan of about an hour before being cleared by the liver through a variety of receptors. Well, now the second point. What about the endogenous production and transport of lipid from liver to other tissues? Well, again, as lipids are not soluble in blood, they must be transported in specialised vesicles, or in the case of fatty acids, released from adipose tissue bound to albumin. Measuring serum lipids therefore measures cholesterol and triglycerides transported in these specialised complex particles. These are either the chylomicrons, which we've identified arise from the gut after digestion and absorption of lipids, and aren't present after fasting as they're cleared within an hour or so of digestion, or lipoproteins that are manufactured predominantly liver in the case of the high-density lipoprotein also by intestines. So the liver manufactures both triglycerides and cholesterol. Endogenous triglyceride production increases when caloric intake is high and excessive. For example, when there's ongoing high consumption of refined carbohydrate, in an energy replete individual and arising from metabolism of both glucose and fructose. Again, as lipids are insoluble, they've got to be packaged in specialised macromolecular complexes for transport around the circulation, and these are called lipoproteins. The lipoproteins are constructed using phospholipids orientated with the hydrophobic interior and hydrophilic exterior. There's also cholesterol, triglycerides in these lipoproteins, of course, and specialised proteins referred to as apolipoproteins, named A, B, C, D, E, and H. And these apolipoproteins are important cofactors, enzymes involved in lipoprotein metabolism. They act as specific ligands for the binding of lipoproteins to cell membrane receptors that allow their internalisation and exchange of lipid constituents. Well, the two main lipoproteins you've heard of, and they're manufactured by the liver, they're VLDL, very low-density lipoprotein, and HDL, high-density lipoprotein. VLDL carries most of the triglyceride. It's large, 65% of triglycerides within it. It contains 13% cholesterol and 10% protein. And the drivers of VLDL production, apart from excess refined carbohydrate, carbohydrate intake also include insulin, which is elevated in the insulin resistance and that we see as part of the metabolic syndrome, it's also, a VDL production is also increased by alcohol. Lipoprotein lipase in peripheral capillaries 
removes much of the triglyceride content of the LDL, hydrolyzing it to glycerol and fatty acids, and the lipoprotein has now become something we call an intermediate density lipoprotein, which after the removal of one of its carrier proteins, the APOE, becomes low density lipoprotein LDL. The LDL carries the triglyceride, becomes intermediate density lipoprotein after some changes to its chemistry, and then low density lipoprotein LDL. And the LDL carries 70% of the total cholesterol. It's recognized as the major atherogenic lipoprotein because of this high cholesterol content component. However, the LDL and intermediate density lipoprotein, IDL, are also implicated in atheroma formation. And all of these atherogenic lipoproteins carry apolipoprotein B. Well, specifically, LDL contains about 10% triglyceride, 45% cholesterol esters, and 20% protein. And abundant LDL levels deliver potentially damaging cholesterol esters to the vascular wall, driving atheroma production, with hypertension, smoking, adverse genetic factors, and poor glycemic control facilitating cell entry. Furthermore, small, dense LDL particles associated with refined carbohydrate and trans fat ingestion have been described and are more atherogenic than larger buoyant LDL particles. Upon their circulation through the liver, these atherogenic lipoproteins bind to LDL receptors on hepatocytes. This results in their internalization into the hepatocyte and degradation. This occurs both for the LDL and LDL remnants with cholesterol cleared by the liver after conversion to bile salts. 70% of the body's LDL receptors are found in the liver, although most other tissues also have them. And an important discovery has determined the protein PCSK9, proprotein convertase subtilisin kexin type 9, which regulates the degradation of LDL receptors in response to intracellular cholesterol concentrations. And this is important because it's led to the development of the PCSK9 inhibitors, which prolong LDL receptor life, facilitating LDL clearance from circulation. An interesting observation is also that apolipoprotein C, C3, which is a component of remnant lipoproteins, inhibits lipoprotein lipase, raising triglyceride levels further. Carriers of a loss of function in this APOC3 have 40% lower triglyceride levels and a 40% reduction in coronary heart disease, highlighting the role triglycerides play in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Additionally, an atherogenic lipoprotein called lipoprotein A is a low-density lipoprotein particle similar to LDL, but also containing APOA. It attaches to apoprotein B by the sulfide bridge. It's thought to be elevated in up to 20% of the world's population and largely subject to autosomal dominant inheritance. It's found in plaque, inhibits thrombolysis, and may serve as a useful biomarker for cardiovascular risk into the future. Now let's talk about the third point, the reverse transport of cholesterol from extrahepatic tissue to the liver. Well, the other lipoprotein produced by the liver is HDL. Um, it's important in the reverse transport of cholesterol from the periphery to the liver. HDL also scavenges and recycles apoproteins from cholomicrons and VLDL. There's a lot going on. It contains 2% triglyceride, 18% cholesterol, and 50% protein. HDL levels may be favorably elevated by physiological fitness, and because of this scavenging property, it's referred to as the good lipoprotein. Total cholesterol levels should thus be considered in the context of non-HDL cholesterol. Interestingly, women's HDL 
is 20% higher than men's, likely reducing their cardiovascular disease risk. While the liver recycles cholesterol returned to it ingeniously, converting it to bile salts, which are highly soluble and combine with other unused cholesterol and phospholipids into micelles, and these are excreted into biliary chemically and subsequently transported through the biliary system. And up to 2 grams of cholesterol and 11 grams of phospholipids entered the intestine this way, combined with about 24 grams of bile salts. These micelles not only circulate cholesterol back to the digestive system, but also play an important function, as noted above, in the absorption and digestion of dietary fats, transporting them to intracytes reabsorption in micelles. What a fascinating circle this is. Number four, fatty acid transport from adipose to other tissues. Well, adipose tissue releases lipid in the form of free fatty acids bound to albumin, not to lipoprotein. The albumin-bound fatty acids have a plasma half-life of only three minutes, and both noradrenaline and adrenaline stimulate lipolysis, as does TNF, thyroid hormones, growth hormone, and corticosteroids, and the latter selectively, hence trunkal obesity in the buffalo hump. Insulin inhibits lipolysis, stimulates lipoprotein lipase activity, glucose absorption into cells, and subsequent uh, to that fat synthesis. Well, as the atherogenic lipoproteins, LDL, the LDL, and IDL deliver cholesterol esters and triglycerides to endothelial intima respectively, it's important we understand how we modify these atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk factors whilst recognising the beneficial properties of HDL. For all the atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk factors used in clinical practice, such as the Australian Absolute Cardiovascular Risk Calculator, formulated by the National Vascular Disease Prevention Alliance and adopted from the Framingham Score, as well as the European Society of Cardiology Score, the American Heart Association Calculator and the Joint British Society Recommendations, the so-called Q-Risk Recommendations, include lipid profile results as well as blood pressure, age, sex and smoking history uh, as part of their workup. Some also include evidence of ECG left ventricular hypertrophy. So we should remember that it is the non-HDL cholesterol present in LDL, VLDL and the intermediate density lipoproteins, IDL, in addition to serum triglycerides, which are present in VLDL, that conveys cardiovascular risk. Well, I hope that hasn't bamboozled you. I want to talk briefly also about some other points that are important for our understanding. The first is inherited disorders. Well, some inherited disorders are important contributors to elevated lipid levels. Hyperlipidemias have a combined prevalence of about 5 to 20% in affluent societies. And there are five hyperlipoprotein phenotypes noted. There's polygenic hypercholesterolemia, and this is used to describe the most common uh, primary disorder causing an increase in plasma cholesterol. Multiple genes appear to interact to cause an elevation in LDL above the 95th percentile. Familial hypercholesterolemia is also a common autosomal disorder affecting about 1 in 500 of us, arising as a mutation and adversely influencing the function of the LDL receptor and consequently impairing LDL clearance. Heterozygotes have a two to three-fold elevation in LDL levels. Homozygotes, a six to eight-fold increase. Familial combined hyperlipidemia is another common autosomal dominant disorder. Disorders including hypothyroidism, obstructive liver disease, nephrotic syndrome, and thiazides may also be associated with hypercholesterolemia, whereas familial hypertriglyceridemia, which is also autosomal dominant and common, with an instance of about 1 in 500, 
characterized by increased levels of VLDL and thus serum triglyceride measurements, and there are many others. Now, current Australian guidelines for lipid management recommend a total cholesterol less than 4 millimoles per litre if at high risk of cardiovascular disease and less than 5.5 millimoles per litre for the general population. They recommend the LDL be held at less than 1.8 millimoles per litre for high risk and less than 2 millimoles per litre for the general population, that triglycerides be held at under 2 millimoles per litre, and HDL above 1 millimoles per litre. Well, lowering LDL cholesterol by just 1 millimoles per litre reduces the incidence of major vascular events, that is, non-fatal myocardial infarction, coronary death, coronary revascularization requirements or stroke, by about one-fifth, with 11 fewer vascular events per 1,000 treated over five years. Similarly, triglyceride reduction by 1 millimole per litre is associated with about half this cardiovascular risk reduction. Let's talk about interventions now that are utilised to modify the cardiac risk associated with lipids. These include, number one, dietary manipulation. While reducing intake of saturated fats to 10% of total energy intake and avoiding dietary trans fats, as well as reducing intake of refined carbohydrate and increasing the intake of non-hydrogenated, mono and some polyunsaturated fats, is widely advised and based on numerous epidemiological studies. Interestingly, studies have not convincingly shown a link between dietary cholesterol and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and this subject continues to be debated. Increasing exercise, avoiding smoking, and improving glycemic control are all recommended. The Mediterranean and DASH diets are excellent pointers for patients to consider. What about pharmacologic modification of lipid synthesis or absorption? Well, there are drugs that lower cholesterol, the statin drugs inhibit the hydroxymethylglutarol coenzyme A reductase, shortened to HMG coenzyme reductase, responsible for cholesterol production. High-intensity statins such as atorvastatin and rosuvastatin drive down LDL levels in the range of 30 to 63%. And some studies have demonstrated the 36% reduction in acute cardiovascular events with these products compared to placebo and a 25% reduction in the risk of major vascular events for every one millimole reduction in LDL cholesterol. Studies also show that when LDL cholesterol is reduced by more than 50% with statins, there is a cessation in the progression of atheroma formation and a promotion of coronary atheroma regression. That's a very important point. Statins are not recommended for use in pregnancy, lactation, and with active liver disease. And although they are generally well tolerated, muscle pain is reported in 1% and weakness in about 0.1 to 0.5%. Rhabdomyolysis is reported in less than 100,000 cases and significant liver enzyme derangement in 1% only. Myopathy is enhanced with concurrent use of gemfiprazole macrolides and some antifungals to be aware of the side effect interactions. Next drug, ezetimibe. This targets the Neiman-PIK-C1 lycopene protein which decreases cholesterol on bile salt absorption from the ileum and thus reduces LDL cholesterol by 18% as monotherapy and an additional 24% when added to statins. Its use should be considered when optimal non-HDL cholesterol levels are not achieved by statins alone. It's not recommended for use with statins in pregnancy and lactation, and in combination with phenofibrate in the setting of gallbladder disease and in active liver disease. Next, the PCSK9 drugs. These regulate LDL receptors on the surface of hepatocytes, and the inhibition prevents LDL receptor degradation and increases LDL clearance. 
Evolocumab is an example of a fully humanized monoclonal antibody available in the PBS. The drugs are expensive, they're administered parenterally. However, studies demonstrate the potential benefit in high-risk patients. And added to statins, these drugs reduce LDL cholesterol by a whopping 64%. Triglyceride lowering. Well, fibrates bind and activate peroxisome proliferator activated receptor alpha inhibitors. Peroxisome proliferator activated receptors cause the proliferation of peroxisomes and of the lipid metabolizing peroxisomal pathways. PPAR is expressed mainly in the liver and activated by monosaturated and polyunsaturated fats. So fibrates are effective in lowering plasma triglycerides by decreasing the LDL production. What about other drugs? Well, drugs such as cholestyramine inhibit bile salt recirculation and cholesterol reabsorption. Nicotinic acid inhibits the synthesis and secretion of the LDL, but they both have relatively limited utility now in clinical practice. And the new pipeline drugs um, to consider, including acosapent ethyl, enclisteran, hastial mimetics, and bromodomain extraterminal protein inhibitors. And we think we can watch this emerging space with great interest. And multiple epidemiological studies have demonstrated a greater incidence of coronary artery disease linked to non-HDL cholesterol and elevated serum triglycerides, as well as a protective effect from high HDL levels, which includes when triglycerides and LDL levels are high, and a lowering of cardiovascular disease risk, even when optimal triglycerides and non-HDL cholesterol levels are achieved. So given the critical importance of cardiovascular risk modification, it was a pleasure to invite cardiologist Dr. Brett Forge to the following two episodes of this podcast to expand on this fascinating subject. Please take a rest. I hope you've digested some of this information and thank you for listening. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au. Thank you.